Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 8, where we're learning about the Polish-Muscovite War. episode I'm going to be getting my Victor Hugo, my Herman Melville, or most suitably my Leo Tolstoy on, and going so far off on a tangent that I eventually loop back to my original point. Oh, although it in no way concerns etc etc. Exactly. Because the first time that we ever delved into Russian history on Casting Lots, Siege of Leningrad, Siege of Leningrad, we actually started in the 19th century. We did Alex Carmella and the Great Survival Cannibalism of 1812. <laughs> I was very proud of that one. Yeah, good, that one, yeah. With Napoleon's invasion of Russia. In 19th century Russia, we eat bodies, we eat bodies. <laughs> but this time, we're going to be going back two centuries before then, exactly, to 1612. Okay. Back to Moscow and to the birth of a dynasty. Ooh. Carmela, would you like to learn how the House of Romanov emerged out of the ashes of survival cannibalism? Absolutely. I thought you might. Now, first of all, I know we've already made reference to Great Comet. <laughs> Sorry. But the prologue bears referencing here. You're going to have to study up a little bit if you want to keep with the plot, because it's a complicated Russian story, everyone's got nine different names. Hurrah! So this might get a little bit confusing. Our episodes are never confusing or indeed confused. <laughs> Perfect clarity at all times. Now, the Romanovs rose in the rank of the aristocracy under Ivan the Terrible. Ah, remember him from the previous episode? If you haven't listened to these in order, then you won't. Maybe listen to that episode first. We'll pause here, go back and listen, and then it's nice to have you back. <laughs> Welcome back. You now know all about Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible married Anastasia Romanova on February 3rd, 1547. And this wedding is the connection between the two Russian dynasties, the Rurikids and the Romanovs. But it is most certainly not a smooth link. After all, one of the most famous things about Ivan is that he's terrible. Is that he's terrible. The murder of his own son and heir, Ivan... Ivan the murdered. Ivan the murdered. <laughs> Ivan Ivanovich, who was killed in 1581. Despite having had six children with Anastasia, the inheritor of the Tsarship was Fyodor Ivanovich in 1584. I'm going to apologise here for anyone who knows how to pronounce Russian. Oh, even to the people who don't know how to pronounce Russian, but no, that ain't it. <laughs> the best way of thinking about Theodore is, for a UK comparison, Henry VI. 
a bit of a religious drip, not really into the whole monarchy thing, quite into his wife, but much more focused on being pious and content to leave the ruling side of things to others. I love how you assume, like, they don't know about these Russian monarchs, but they'll know all about Henry VI. Henry VI is my favourite Shakespeare play, so therefore everyone shares interests with me. (laughs) I don't think I can tell you a single fact about Henry VI apart from there's a Shakespeare play. I don't think that leaving it for others to deal with has ever been a successful strategy for leadership. (laughs) That that just tends to be a great leadership strategy that's often used. Not in monarchies. No, okay. (laughs) Especially when you don't have an heir. Mm. Following Theodore's death in 1598, the time of troubles comes about. It's a succession crisis merged with a violent uprising, famine, usurpers and the Polish-Muscovite war. Ooh, beautiful. Now, while I'm sure there was survival cannibalism during the famine of 1601 to 1603, In fact, I have a source depicting that, quote, people like animals ate grass during the summer and hay during the winter. Human flesh, finely ground, baked in pies, was sold and consumed like beef. I have to say that animals don't tend to bake human flesh in pies. There were square brackets in between those two parts of that (laughs) quote. Okay, that makes more sense. Although, have you read Animal Farm? Very true. But do you know what? I don't want to do another famine. So we're going to look at the Polish-Muscovite War. Because it's not just Russia who is a big player in Europe at this time. And the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, aka the Crown of the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, have been butting heads with their Russian neighbours for years. And what better time for an invasion attempt than the Time of Troubles? You know, there's already problems. Just add another problem to the pile, baby. Russia's practically in a civil war at the moment. New Tsar Boris Godunov, who had been the lead advisor under Fyodor. See, it never works out well. (laughs) Well, he's not a fan of the Romanovs. Hold on to this fact. But also remember that Ivan and Anastasia had six children, who would be half Romanov. And Russia has a long, long history of usurpers and pretenders. Indeed. So, as Poland thinks, why not just strike while your enemy is a bit distracted? Yeah, get them while they're down. Very sporting. This sets the scene for war. At first, this is a cold war. Haha, no pun intended. The worst part is that wasn't intended when I wrote the script. (laughs) With various Polish nobles supporting the false Dimitris. Oh, the false Dimitris. There are either five or six false Dimitris. Some people wonder whether or not they just recorded the fifth one twice. (laughs) But these are some of the imposters and pretenders who are trying to take the throne. Mm-hmm. One of the Dimitris makes it all the way to the Tsarship in 1605. Okay, pretty successful. I know there must be a real name for Tsarship, but at this point I've finished my script. I'm not researching anything further. It is the Tsarship from here on in. 
Sardom. We'll make it all the way to the position of Tsar. Doesn't have the same pizzazz. It's all about the pizzazz here at Casting Lots. It's certainly all about the pizzazz in um, 17th century Russia, I'm telling oh. you that. Oh ho. The Polish Muscovite War becomes hottest in 1609. So it was cold, now it's hot. Now it's hot, there's all sorts of stuff going on. This is when Poland successfully invades Russia because King Sizimon III of Poland, he doesn't want his people to be supporting various Dimitris. No, only, only Sigismund, no Dimitri. He wants to be Tsar. Ah, uh, well, I mean, if look, if Dimitri can do it, then anyone can. Dimitri the fourth or third or second or fifth. Whichever Dimitri it was. Now, where we start getting interested is September 1610, when the Polish-Lithuanian army successfully takes Moscow after the Battle of Klaszino. They depose the latest in a long line of Tsars, Tsar Walesky IV. Those in Moscow clearly aware that they're on the wrong side, or at least the losing side of this particular battle, acknowledge the son of King Sizimund as Tsar. Although, because Daddy also wants to be Tsar, Vladislav never takes up the title. You know, like father, not like son. I have the feeling that Sizimund would be a little bit unhappy if his son became Tsar before him. Now, not surprisingly, most of Russia isn't actually distracted enough by the times of troubles not to notice the invasion? <laughs> I have to say, it was a ballsy strategy, but it didn't quite play off there. Yeah, most people aren't too pleased, but this just adds to the general tension in the country at the time. Adding troubles onto the pyre one at a time. Don't know why it's a pyre. Don't know why it's... Hold on to that thought for later. Okay. Polish forces will hold Moscow for two years, which I think is actually quite impressive. Yeah. There are a lot of political and military goings-on at this point. Alliances are made and broken between Russia and Sweden and Poland, and there are divisions within Poland despite the invasion, but this is already complicated enough. So we're going to focus in on what's happening in Moscow. What is happening in Moscow, Alex? Now, my sources aren't telling me how well the Russian population of Moscow and the surrounding towns and cities are being treated by the invading Polish-Lithuanian forces. Is that just because it's too many words? <laughs> I'm going to imagine it's not good. Certainly, if the reaction of the citizens of Moscow are anything to go by... People really aren't all that pleased with being occupied by an invading force. But they're not. Just ungrateful, isn't it? That's so weird. I'd be totally cool with that, you know. The resistance is fairly quiet during 1610, but by the spring of 1611, the citizens of Moscow have started rebelling violently. Good for them. These uprisings are suppressed equally as violently. Less good for them. At least at first. In the March of 1611, the people seize a munitions storage facility in the city. Oh, that's going to go well. 
Yeah, the Polish troops fight back, killing approximately 7,000 people and set fires which consume a large part of Moscow. Whew, that's, um, that'll put an end to that then. Except it doesn't. That'll make them angrier then. Because, to be honest, the Polish garrison who are holding the city aren't in the best shape. Not exactly fighting fit. It's been a long hold of Moscow. It's quite difficult for food to be brought in for the troops because of the whole invasion thing. Mm. And the Polish army haven't been being paid very well. Oh. In fact, by 1612, parts of the army will mutiny because of unpaid wages, all of which puts the Polish troops at a bit of a disadvantage. Always unionise, folks. Up the workers. But maybe not the invading soldiers, I don't know. (laughs) It's like, you don't support them, but they should be being paid for their labour. They should be being paid for the murders that they're doing. Yes. (laughs) A radical take here at Casting Lots. (laughs) Now, this is when a bit of dramatic irony takes place. Because once things start to turn in 1611, the Polish troops seize the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Homogenes, and order him to sign a statement on behalf of the Russian people calling off all Russian attacks on the city. Does he have the authority to do that? He's currently the most important Russian in the city of Moscow, as everyone else has either been killed or buggered off. (laughs) Guess he does then. It's like wheeling out the Archbishop of Canterbury if there's no one else left. (laughs) Like, I'm not religious, but I feel that If the situation called for it, that they needed an authority figure, I would understand someone grabbing the Archbishop of Canterbury and asking for a statement. It's like when you go into a shop and the manager's not in and the assistant manager's not in and you're like, look, I've got to talk to someone. Homogenes refuses to sign this. And in punishment, he's starved to death. Oh! Oh, how God will pay you for this blow against the patriarch and speaking of being starved to death the poorly armed people's militia alongside the people of moscow rebel again in 1611 and besiege the polish garrison inside the kremlin they actually managed to force the troops to retreat oh well done to them but retreat inside an armed fortification Within the city of Moscow. But still, siege, always a good way to go. It puts them in a powerful position. The First People's Militia are quite successful, but they're poorly organised and ultimately fail to take the Kremlin. They do try, but they are in a position to hold the Polish garrison under siege. It had already been difficult enough for the Polish garrison to be supplied with food while occupying Moscow. It's going to be harder now. Yeah. Food had to be collected by force from outside the city, and now Polish soldiers really are on the back foot. It took months for carts of provisions to enter Moscow in 1611. What with all the rebellions and the uprisings and the fires going on. And while in the January of 1612 a regiment does break through the lines to temporarily ease the food situation, 
a situation that was affecting civilians as well as soldiers, bread being sold at a mere 30 times regular price. Ah, so affordable. The food situation inside the Kremlin is dire. I can imagine, but I would say that's what happens when you retreat inside an armed fortification and are just stuck there. Without any food. Yes. Seems like you could have retreated elsewhere, perhaps. Not to to blame them or anything. Not to victim blame. Not to victim blame, but... A 17th century Polish poem even humorously references the conditions within the Kremlin. That, quote, The dishes that were served to us were hard to tell about. We ate what we got, be it a dog or a cat. (laughs) Very humorous. (laughs) It rhymes in Polish, I have been told. Okay, okay. I mean, if you just said cat really weirdly, you could kind of force it. We ate what we got to be a dog or a cat. <laughs> yes. Perfect. <laughs> I was going to, we, we ate what we got, be it a dog or a cat. That works better, yeah. <laughs> the garrison are trapped inside the Kremlin, and this siege will go on for 19 months. God, okay, and with very little food. I know you don't want to feel sorry for the Polish-Lithuanian garrison, but you sort of end up feeling a bit sorry for them for 19 months. Yeah, I mean, they are just people who've been sent there, right? And who aren't being paid for it, apparently. I am not not being paid enough for this. (laughs) The people of Moscow continue the fight. It's not just a fight for Moscow. I know we're really zoomed in, but there is an entire war going on out there somewhere that's it okay (laughs) yeah yeah nice nice how many more great comet references are you gonna get in i think we've nearly reached the end of the great comet references we managed not to make any anastasia references yet apart from the fact there's someone called anastasia and someone called dimitri everyone's called dimitri (laughs) exactly those are just names aren't they this time the fight is more organized The Second People's Militia, also known as the Second Volunteer Army, comes together, led by Prince, guess what, Dmitri, (laughs) Pazaki, and respected butcher and merchant, Kuzumun Minin. Oh, I respect that guy so much. This time, the Volunteer Army is well-armed, organised and ready to fight. I mean, it sounds like the Polish-Lithuanian Army are also volunteers. (laughs) Whether they intend that to be the case or not. Is that not the case for the rank or file in most militaries? Very true. The quotes I have from Polish forces do strangely tend to be the officer class. Hmm, funny that. The second volunteer army successfully takes cities and towns surrounding Moscow. This is now 1612. The Polish mutiny is taking place, meaning that Polish morale is low, and anti-Polish morale is high. That makes sense. However, the news does come that a Polish relief army is coming to support the garrison, who have been besieged in the Kremlin for months. So, in the August of 1612, the Second People's Militia enter Moscow first and add pressure to the Polish garrison inside the Kremlin. This is now an amazing double whammy siege going on. A siege within a siege. A siege within a siege. Siegeception. 
The 9,000 strong relief army has arrived for the troops trapped in the Kremlin. The second people's militia is the filling in a Polish-Lithuanian siege sandwich. (laughs) But despite the fact that the Polish hussars have additional Hungarian and German infantry troops with them, the Don Cossacks... Hey, those are the guys that Yermak led. They're supporting the Russians. The fighting is fierce and bloody. It always is with the Cossacks. The Polish garrison in the Kremlin try and help, but at this point they are pretty much useless. Sorry guys, but they are. It's been like 19 months, no one's expected them to be on top form. They're not in any form. It's gone from being a fight in the open to a fight in the streets of Moscow. You know that scene in Les Mis 2012 with the cavalryman riding sword drawn through Greenwich? Sorry, I mean Paris. I know it intimately well. (laughs) Picture that in the narrow streets of Moscow. I'm picturing cinematic. Very cinematic. (laughs) The streets of Moscow also look like Greenwich. (laughs) It's amazing how many places across the world Look just like the old Royal Naval College. <laughs> it's weird, that. The infrastructure of Moscow proves ineffective for the relief army's invasion-slash-siege tactics, and the Russians have the home advantage. They're on their own turf. Exactly. There are two battles of Moscow, and victory is the Russians for both. Well done, Russians. The Russians have their city back. Apart from the Kremlin. Okay, so that's still that's still there. The Garrett it's still there to this day. <laughs> I mean the Polish Lithuanian army is still there in the Kremlin. The garrison in the Kremlin hold out until early November sixteen twelve, when they eventually surrender, having been starved into submission. That will happen. Safe passage is arranged for the surviving garrison troops. Is it? Half of the survivors are immediately massacred. Right, that, yeah, very safe. Safely into the gates of heaven. Psych. So, what has been happening inside the Kremlin during this time? Oh, do you reveal all? Well, I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Is the answer cannibalism? Yes. Cool. End of episode. Lovely to see you guys. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) The food shortages began in earnest in the spring of 1611, and by the latter stages of the year, people were eating dogs, cats, mice, rats, leather, horses, and yes, each other. First the prisoners were consumed, then the corpses were exhumed, and then the endocannibalism began. I was inspired by the poem from earlier. That was beautiful. So, sorry, let me just... They start... They kill the prisoners and eat them? Yes. Before digging up the bodies that are already dead. That is allegedly what my source says. I assume that the exhumed corpses were of their own soldiers. Why the distinction is being made. Yes, but even so, they're already dead. It's just wasteful. Yeah, well, you're going to kill some new people when you've got some corpses right there. Like, well, I guess that they're a bit old and manky. But even so, it and just seems, like, quite rude towards the prisoners. Just because someone's a prisoner doesn't mean they deserve to be killed and eaten. 
Call me a bleeding heart liberal, if you will. <laughs> in these circumstances, I'd say there's probably not that much of a focus on keeping your prisoners healthy and happy. And yeah. in fact, you probably don't want to waste food on your prisoners when your prisoners could in fact be, be food. food. Yeah, okay. Quote, Human bodies were salted, smoked, roasted and boiled. Hmm, a very varied menu. They were there for 19 months. They had to do something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've really been trying a lot of different recipes in lockdown to sort of enrich my experiences. There is no recorded time frame of when the survival cannibalism began, but as the wonderfully named Famine and poverty in the army during the reign of the House of Vassa, in light of the reports and diaries, points out, these were soldiers amid an active siege, and, quote, a soldier weakened with hunger could not effectively fight and defend his life. It's true. We have evidence of cannibalism from both Russian and Polish sources. A letter from a Polish commander who had been stationed within the Kremlin acknowledges the fate of the garrison. Then it occurred rare, or at least not spoken about, but in our case almost blatant, the case of eating ones of our own kind. So that is the endocannibalism situation? Or does he just mean humankind rather than Polish kind? Considering that I had to slide into my friend's DMs and ask Carol to translate it for me because I could only find that quote in Polish. Oh, so literally no idea could say anything. I was like, I am sure from the context of this quote, it probably confirms cannibalism. <laughs> but for some reason, the article has not translated anything in Polish. So there's nothing quite like going up to your friends, sliding, what is it, like a $5 bill and some cannibalism quotes across the table, being like, can you translate these for me? Does this say cannibalism in it? <laughs> what are we going to do when this podcast is over and we can't traumatise our loved ones by talking about cannibalism at random times? We can always talk about cannibalism at random times. A lesson for life. <laughs> Journals kept during the siege note the spread of famine diseases, scurvy, lack of nutrients, and even, again, a lot of this was in Polish, it was very hard for me to authenticate, but apparently there were cases of auto-cannibalism. Oh, interesting. People attempting to eat their own flesh to survive. If you're hungry enough. It's got diminishing returns as a method of staying alive, <laughs> quite literally. Once the siege was lifted, grisly remains were discovered. You don't... I'm not surprised by that. Salted human flesh was discovered by Cossack forces and, quote, under the slings, there is a lot of human corpse. Mm. Now, I'm not changing any of these translations, but they probably flow better in their original language. I wonder how they identify the salted flesh as being human in origin. Would you easily be able to tell the difference between that and salted pork? Or would you just assume, like, they weren't getting pigs from anywhere? Must be human. Sort of, it's been 19 months. There's 
open graves. Yeah, inference. And some meat. But the fact it was salted, I do... I know we said it mockingly, but they clearly did have time on their hands. Yeah, and salt. A lot of salt. But they were holding out for a siege. They keeping the meat fresh. Yeah, they planned. They stocked their larders. And then they all got slaughtered upon surrender. Yep. After King Sigismund learns of the capitulation of the garrison in the Kremlin, he just turns around and nopes all the way back to Poland. You would. He had technically been leading another relief army and just decided it's not worth it. They don't need relief anymore. They just need to be left. So what is Russia to do now they have expelled the Polish army from Moscow? I don't know. What are they to do? And they've temporarily expelled the Polish army out of Russia. Well, they need a new czar and quick. After a couple of other candidates turned down the opportunity... Some more Dimitris. 16-year-old Michel Romanov is offered the crown. Wow, they they really scrape the bottom of the barrel when you start turning to teenagers. Oh, just wait. He is found in a monastery. He's not too keen on the idea. In fact, he cries when he's offered the crown. Baby. But as the first cousin once removed of the last Rurikid Tsar, Fyodor, and the great-nephew-in-law of Ivan the Terrible, his lineage is top-notch. Those Rurikid and Romanov ties hark back to a period of stability, and as the Romanovs were seen as victims of Tsar Boris Godunov, he can really play the pity card. Ah, uh, that's why he's crying. Don't trust him. And so, in the February of 1613, begins the House of Romanov, Russia's second reigning dynasty. So that's what connects survival cannibalism, Great Comet, and Anastasia. Beautiful. The Polish-Muscovite War winds down after the capture, siege, and various battles of Moscow, and eventually staggers to a formal truce in 1618. And to this day, Poland and Russia don't get on too well. Not the besties. No. I have to assume that it's not exclusively because of... Like, the one time there was a cannibal siege, there must have been other stuff since, right? Snowball effect. Snowball effect. I don't think it was just the cannibal siege that pissed off Russia. I think it was the whole... The whole war. The whole war. All of the invasion. All of the war was upsetting, not just the bit where they got stuck in the Kremlin and ate each other. And also, technically... It was the Polish-Lithuanian forces that did the cannibalism. Yeah, the Russians just out there like, well, that's a whole lot of their problem. Sitting there at the restaurant, just watching. <laughs> Can't hold it against them, really. But there you go. That is what connects survival cannibalism and the House of Romanov. Beautiful. Next up, House of Windsor. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for today's episode on the Polish-Muscovite War. There's a war going on out there somewhere, and literally all food isn't here. I'm running out of Great Comet references. We'll just have to end the episode. Join us next time for something far less whimsical, as we look at the Vietnamese boat people.
Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett, Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.